physicians fall short in class action lawsuit against the ABIM. Adolescents are especially susceptible to the harms of vaping. And the ATS publishes new community-acquired pneumonia guidelines. Hi, and welcome to the show. Today is October 14th, 2019, and I'm Dr. Michael Zagoda for the Spyro Podcast. In what began as mere grumblings and complaints, a group of doctors embarked on a legal demonstration against the American Board of Internal Medicine, and they succeeded in gathering supporters nationwide. The group of doctors raised well above 200000 via a GoFundMe campaign that enabled supporters to donate to this cause. The funds raised were used to settle bills incurred during the legal battle against the ABIM, cardiologists based in Chicago, and also members of the Practicing Physicians of America, launched the GoFundMe campaign in May 2018 to combat what they describe as unproven and worrisome certification requirements for all subspecialties in the nation. The two physicians initially agrees to raise a total of $150,000 to pay for an attorney and pre-litigation costs. They reached their goals but had to extend it further when four other intern doctors filed suits against the ABIM. In the end, they were able to raise funds to the tune of about $400,000. The physicians under the umbrella of the PPA leveled three allegations against the ABIM. That the ABIM charges a ridiculously high fee for their certifications. That the ABIM is compelling health practitioners to buy into the Maintenance of Certification, or MOC. And finally, the ABIM is, in a way, trying to induce employers to make ABIM certificates a must for job seekers. The ABIM, in its response to the allegations through the president, Richard J. Barron, said the ABIM board is proud of its achievements over the years and it is not phased by the ongoing campaign. In his words, quote, Valuable credentials with standards behind them gain market share because they are meaningful and say something important about the doctors who hold them, and there is evidence in peer-reviewed journals that doctors holding our credentials are more likely to meet quality metrics throughout their careers, end quote. He ended the interview by affirming that the ABIM would vigorously fight against the allegations as it focuses on maintaining the standards and values of the ABIM. The case was heard on September 26, 2019 at the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania by Judge Robert F. Kelly. In his judgment, he dismissed the case, stating that no law mandated physicians to purchase the MOC and that no one is mandated to buy the MOC before purchasing ABIM certificates. The judge then ended his ruling, giving the plaintiff has a maximum of 14 days to amend their suit and file again. The Spyro Podcast is written for healthcare specialists that practice pulmonary, critical care, and or sleep medicine. We cover a broad range of subjects from the newest recommendations for your clinic to pending diagnostic and therapeutic options for your patients that are on the horizon. From time to time, we'll interview thought leaders in our specialty with our two-minute elevator pitch and are going to be sharing how certain long-term clinical trials are going in the United States and abroad. So subscribe now to the Spyro Podcast so you can help your patients while being the most informed. Writing for the Spyro Podcast, Dr. Amrita Kokar discusses vaping harming adolescents with asthma. E-cigarettes have exploded, pun intended, in popularity since their introduction in 2007, especially among adolescents. Commonly touted as a safer alternative than conventional cigarettes and even branded as smoking cessation aids, e-cigarettes use an aerosol rather than combusted tobacco to deliver nicotine to the body. In addition to nicotine, the aerosols contain a host of other ingredients, including propylene glycol, vegetable glycerin, and flavorings. 
Even those with CBD oil now are being touted as causing specific issues with the lungs and have a higher risk for causing lung injury as well. However, it is the flavorings that are the biggest issue, it seems. These flavors are what draw adolescents into the devices in the first place and have been the target of a recently updated FDA policy. While cigarette advertising has been banned for decades, the same law does not apply to e-cigarettes. Therefore, it is not completely surprising to learn that e-cigarette use has outpaced conventional cigarettes among teenagers. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that e-cigarette use increased by 78% among high schoolers from 2017 to 2018 alone. At the same time, nearly 1 in 12 children under the age of 18 have asthma. And many asthmatic adolescents admit to vaping or the act of inhaling e-cigarettes. So what effect has vaping had on those susceptible teenagers? Well, multiple studies indicate that despite the promotion of e-cigarettes as a, quote, safer, and quote, alternative to conventional cigarettes, the damage that they do in the lungs can still be significant. In a study published last month, researchers at the Baylor College of Medicine found that mice exposed to e-cigarette vapor demonstrated damage to the immune cells in the lung and more difficulty in fighting off infections. Other mice studies also suggested that allergic inflammation may be an occurring issue and acts in response to vapor exposure, which can drive the development of asthma. The study of mice is relevant in helping us understand what might be going on in our bodies. The studies are revealing that these adverse effects are also occurring outside the laboratory. In a study of high school students in South Korea, researchers found that those who use e-cigarettes reported an increase in asthma symptoms and missed days from school compared to those who did not use the devices. A 2017 study in Southern California also found that high schoolers using e-cigarettes reported an increase in chronic coffee and bronchitis. In Hawaii, a study of more than 6,000 students in high school showed that e-cigarette use was, quote, associated with a higher likelihood of asthma, end quote. Surprisingly, a survey of high school students in Florida revealed that e-cigarette use was very common among students with asthma and was associated with having asthma attacks as well. The FDA has recently come down hard on e-cigarette companies from marketing to children, and now in the wake of mounting unexplained vaping-related deaths, states are also taking action and banning the sale of the devices. While the study on the adverse effects of e-cigarettes is ongoing, more outreach and education will be done to help adolescents with and without asthma to understand the risks that they may be taking by using these devices. And on a personal note... Just within the last week, I have had five patients admitted to our intensive care unit, all of which were in their late 20s to young 30s, and each of which had bilateral airspace disease consistent with something like a pneumonitis. What was interesting is that our lung biopsy showed the same thing that was found by the Mayo Clinic, that these biopsies did not show findings consistent with a pneumonitis, but was more in line with something like a popcorn lung or an actual chemical burn to the lung, more so than an ARDS-type picture. It's going to be interesting to see how this teases itself out over time, but of difference was that the patients of which I was able to help take care of, their lung injuries seem to be associated with that used with CBD or marijuana-based vaping products. It is already known that the majority of people having vaping lung injury is related specifically to marijuana-based products, as these are much less regulated than other products, of course. But at the same time, vaping in and of itself is also noted to be causing issues, as we have all seen. It's going to be interesting to see how this teases out over time. In the meantime, I am not recommending for my personal patients that they use e-cigarettes to try to help quit smoking, because I feel like you're just trading off one poison for another. You may feel different and in different patients in specific populations. It may work for them and for you. But in my personal practice, after seeing five young people struggle with just barely being able to survive, I think I'm going to hold off for now. 
before we get into our last topic for today, and you think the content is worth your time, don't forget to subscribe to The Spiral Podcast, where we hope to help your patients by helping you to be the most informed. Heliopulmonary reports that recently updated guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of adults with community-associated pneumonia stresses the importance of de-escalation of antibiotic therapy and made stricter recommendations on when to use broad-spectrum antibiotics, especially in those patients with community-associated pneumonia and risk factors for drug-resistant organisms. It had been 12 years since the last community-associated pneumonia guidelines were published, and, quote, much has not changed, end quote, said Joshua P. Metley, MD, PhD, the chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, who co-authored the American Thoracic Society Infectious Diseases Society of America Guideline Committee, quote, much of our first-line therapy is very similar, which tells you that there hasn't been a lot more in the pipeline, although there are some new drugs that have been recently released and approved. So I think we're going to see some updates in the coming years, Metley told Infectious Disease News. He said the new guidelines, quote, sharpened up, end quote, recommendations for microbiological testing to make testing more aligned with the treatment decisions and addressed the widespread use of broad-spectrum antibiotics for the healthcare-associated pneumonia. Quote, we felt the need to try and address the overuse of the healthcare-associated pneumonia category by reducing the circumstances under which people used healthcare-associated pneumonia to justify them giving broad-spectrum treatment and try to point out that when these broader antibiotics are being used, they're being used inappropriately and may be worsening outcomes, Metley explained, end quote. For adults with community-associated pneumonia being treated in the outpatient setting, the guidelines now recommend against collecting sputum gram stain and culture or blood cultures or performing urinary pneumococcal or Legionella antigen testing. The guidelines do recommend obtaining pre-treatment gram stain and culturing respiratory secretions for adult patients being managed in the hospital setting only, and those that have severe community-acquired are being empirically treated for MRSA or Pseudomonas. Those are the patients that have been previously infected with MRSA or Pseudomonas or recently hospitalized and received parenteral antibiotics are the ones that you would want to get gram stains and culturing for. The guidelines recommended Legionella antigen testing is only used in patients with severe community-associated pneumonia or when Legionella is suspected due to an epidemiological factor, for example, an outbreak or a recent history of travel, whereas pneumococcal antigen testing should be performed only among patients with severe community-associated pneumonia. According to the guidelines, corticosteroids should not be routinely used in adults with pneumonia because, quote, there are no data suggesting benefit of corticosteroids in patients with non-severe community-associated pneumonia with respect to mortality or organ failure and only limited data in patients with severe community-associated pneumonia, end quote. However, the guidelines do endorse the use of corticosteroids in patients with community-associated pneumonia and refractory septic shock as recommended by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. We did address some new ideas which have emerged in the last 12 years, most specifically related to the use of corticosteroids as adjunct therapy in patients with pneumonia, he states. Ultimately, we concluded that in most cases of community-associated pneumonia, steroids do not have a frontline role in treatment. But we do continue to endorse the role of steroids in treatment of refractory shock and sepsis, Metley added. I think it is increasingly important that local sites have information on the epidemiology of the pathogenesis that are causing their local cases of pneumonia, he said. Quote, we produce national guidelines, but there's a lot about the treatment plan that needs to be locally tailored. The other opportunity here is for infectious disease clinicians to help support some of the efforts that we're trying to promote with the new guidelines and to encourage de-escalation of therapy. Now, like most of you, I believe that this is something that we have been doing for several years in that we tailor our antibiotics based on culture results in the patients that are in the hospital or in the intensive care unit. Obviously, it's much more difficult to do so in the outpatient setting. 
I believe that the jury is still going to be out on these guidelines for a while. There will be a little bit of pushback, especially related to changes in practicing. Uh, fortunately, um, Dr. Mitley did focus a lot of attention on that local treatment is what the focus should be on and not specifically on national guidelines. However, it's going to be interesting to see how many power plans and different protocols are changed across the country based on these guidelines and if this will actually change outcomes. I'm looking forward to seeing those trials. This is the part of the show where I get to share something that I like and something that I really don't like. First, I like Peaky Blinders. If you haven't started watching this show on Netflix, you're missing out. I highly recommend it. It is a crime epic that takes place shortly after the end of the Great War, World War I. Britain is in a mixture of despair and hedonism in 1919, and the returning soldiers are suffering from PTSD and war wounds while newly minted revolutions are rising up, such as communism, fascism. Criminal gangs are running the streets, and they're all fighting for survival in a nation rocked by economic upheaval and moral depravity. One of the most powerful gangs of the time is referred to as the Peaky Blinders. They are run by returning war hero Thomas Shelby and his family. Peaky Blinders got their name because they would sew razor blades into their caps, and when they would face an opponent in a street fight, they would cut the foreheads with these razor blades, and the blood would trickle into the eyes, disabling the ability of the fighters to fight back, therefore winning the war on the streets. But Thomas has bigger ambitions than just running those streets. When a crate of guns goes missing, he recognizes an opportunity to advance in the world because crime may pay, but legitimate business seems to pay better. As a gypsy with no home and a social stigma that is masterfully overcome by Thomas, this alone is worth watching the show. The surrounding subplots add such color and depth to the storyline you feel drawn in and you can feel the tragedy unfolding with the highs and lows coming at unexpected turns. Totally worth the watch. Starts a little slow to establish the characters, but by the time that happens, it is most definitely worth the wait. It's going to draw you in. It's going to give you insights into things, both human nature and historical facts that seem to unfold throughout the storyline. You're going to love it. So far, I believe there's about five going on six episodes, six seasons now. Each season has about six episodes. Each episode is close to an hour long. Definitely worth the watch. Now, let's talk about something I don't like. I don't like steroids. So, let me tell you why. I went to the gym to work out a couple weeks ago. I got in a good 45-minute workout, went home exhausted, had dinner, and went to bed feeling great. I then woke up with a scalding sore throat. Interestingly, it went away by the end of clinic the next day without any issue. Then, two days later, I started having the worst plantar fasciitis of my life. Now I run about 8 to 10 miles a week, and I've had a little bit of plantar fasciitis, but I've never had anything even close to this. I couldn't even get out of bed and walk to get dressed that morning. Half a day later, I started getting these nodules on my hands and feet and finally ended up with lower lip angioedema. I took some old prednisone I found laying around, and by next morning, all was well. Or so I thought. In clinic the next day... The nodules on my hands and feet flared up again, and my mouth also had sores in them now. So I'm thinking hand, foot, and mouth that I got at the gym. Give it a few days, I told myself I'll feel better. By the next day, I was covered in hives. You can see the images on our website if you feel so inclined, but I don't recommend it. It was pretty impressive, however. Anyways, now I'm thinking post-viral urticaria. I went and saw my general practitioner. He agreed, and according to his allergist colleague, recommended prednisone 60 milligrams divided BID with a BID H2 blocker as well as a non-sedating antihistamine. It's been two weeks now, and I'm still having flares while on the prednisone. Nevertheless, since being on this dosage, I've become an emotional 
manic, depressed, insomniac without an internal editor, and I just can't stop eating. So I'm thinking about going on Zolaire. Any thoughts on this, please email me, let me know. Nevertheless, I can't take these steroids much longer. I have a newfound appreciation for what my COPD patients suffer from every time I have to write these meds for them. It may work on the symptoms, but as you know, they are literally eating my soul. Got to get off this stuff. Be sure to listen to our next podcast where we will be at CHEST and we'll cover the most interesting and relevant topics presented as well as interview some of the thought leaders in academia, community medicine, and industry. From Mars Hill Media, this is the Spiral Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You will find a link in our episode's notes. If you tap or swipe over the cover art, you will find offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you liked what you've heard, it would be great if you would give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Zagoda, and as always, I'll leave you with a little inspiration from my favorite artist, Mason Zagoda. Today's stories were written by Judith Mary, Dr. Amrika Kokar, and Dr. J.P. Metley. Guidelines were taken from Heliopulmonary and were published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. I've got a